0: ويقول لي سلم عداد الحب لا تحلون سائمه إلا إذا غنى الهوى ليلا
1: Technological change can have a profound effect on traditional human societies. Take, for example, the birth of metal technology and our ability to transform matter. From Holy Land to Holy Land traces the origin of metal production during the prehistoric Copper Age in Israel and Jordan over 6,000 years ago, the Holy Land of Judaism, Christianity, Islam, to the role of metal production over 1,000 years ago during the historic Chola Empire in India, in the heartland of Hinduism, where the same traditional techniques of metal production are used to this day. To understand ancient technologies, archaeologists turn into ethno-archaeologists to study the relationship between material culture and behavior in traditional societies.
2: I've tried to use metalworking as a lens to study um, social evolution.
1: That's archaeologist Tom Levy. The UC San Diego professor spent several months each year with a team of graduate and undergraduate students and local archaeologist Muhammad Najjar excavating sites related to ancient mining and metallurgy from prehistoric to biblical times in Jordan's Faynan Copper Ore District. They recently uncovered the largest ancient copper factory, 3,000 years old, from the time of Kings David, Solomon and other biblical okay, so what figures. What we
2: need to do is actually dig a little bit into this and, and pull out some of the carbon okay. and, uh, and then shoot it in.
1: To understand the very beginnings of metallurgy, Levy began excavating sites in Israel's Negev desert in the late 1970s. Those sites dating to around 6,000 years ago, during the Chalcolithic or Copper Stone Age. A major problem was to understand how spectacular metal masterpieces found at the site were actually made, where the metal came from, and other issues during this formative period.
2: Some of the objects that we discovered were identical to those that were found in a very famous uh, cave in the Judean desert called the Cave of the Treasure. And so, they never found evidence of where um, the, these beautiful objects—crowns, scepters, mace heads—where uh, they were actually manufactured from the cave of the treasure. But here, in the Negev Desert, about eighty, 80 miles away, we found actual workshops.
1: Radiocarbon dating puts the age of those workshops at approximately 6400 to 6000 years old, dating to the Chalcolithic period. Yet some of the artifacts were so elaborate that Levy believes they could only have been made using what at the time was a revolutionary new method of metalworking,
2: the lost wax method. The Chiefs uh, had very tight control of the metal production. They produced these amazing objects using the lost, what we call the lost wax method uh, to be distributed as gifts to other chiefs or elites uh, up and down the wadi and in other parts of the Holy Land, as it were. And so um, we're, we're, we're seeing the beginnings of social hierarchies and the beginnings of this, this technological revolution um, happening at the same time. Yet very little direct
1: evidence survives of the lost wax process. More on that mystery in a moment.
2: I became fascinated with this whole idea of how did they actually produce um, metal objects, the really intricate ones that, uh, for example, were found in the Chalcolithic period of the Southern Levant, i.e. Israel, Jordan, Palestine.
1: The lost wax method is no longer in use in the Middle East, nor in China, nor Malaysia, nor Africa, where it flourished a thousand years ago.
0: The only area in Africa that I'm familiar with where you had a true uh, bronze age and where the lost wax method was used was in Nigeria and and that's one of the few places in Africa where you have the tin necessary to make the bronze and um, the oldest ironworking object, really quite beautiful objects, go back to a site called Igbo-Ukwu that dates between the 9th and 11th century AD. And as uh, far as I know that in fact in, indeed the loss of wax method was used for those and later very fine bronzes done at Ife and in Benin,
1: again in Nigeria. But the lost wax method is still practice in India. Artisans in the eastern Indian states of Orissa, Bihar, and West Bengal use a version of the lost wax process to this day called dokra to make brass sculptures using zinc rather than tin. But the nature of the lost wax process developed in this region limits the size of the sculptures. But in 2004, on a visit to South India, UCSD's Levy heard of a town in Tamil Nadu where a different lost wax method was still in use, one capable of producing larger bronze objects. Together with his wife and colleague, Alina, Levy traveled to the small town
2: of Swami Malai. I happen to think that in order to produce a a large 40-centimeter long um, copper scepter or something like that, you would have to use the method that we're investigating in Swami Malai. And so we can learn a great deal about how we think um, the Calcolithic craftsmen uh, produce their amazing works from copper by looking at how the craftsmen of Swamimalai produce theirs. The
1: hereditary bronze casters of Swamimalai, known as Stapatis, or craftsmen in the Tamil language, trace their roots to nearby Tanjavur, the capital of the Chola Empire at its peak. Ancestors arrived to help build a temple then settled in nearby Swami Malai in the Kavari River Delta, the same delta that British administrators
2: called the breadbasket of India. Why Swami Malai? Within approximately a six-kilometer stretch of the river, the Kavari River in this area, it has the property of producing the most amazing uh, clay deposits of anywhere in South India. The clays from the Kavari River in this area are so fine that if you put your thumb on the clay it will pick up every ridge of your thumbprint. This special clay uh, actually when it's applied to the wax models it, uh, pro- it produces an amazing replica of,
3: uh, of that model and so the Stapatis never left. There's always a great flowering of cultural and artistic tradition in river valleys, and most archaeologists and historians know this. And one example, of course, is the Nile and then Mesopotamia, and also uh, in this case, the and then, of course, the Gangetic Valley, but in this particular case, uh, it's the River Kaveri where there was, a, this was in southern India where there was a tremendous efflorescence of, of uh, artistic, musical traditions and culture uh, around late um, 10th century, the first millennium uh, A.D. And then this developed more and more and reached its peak around the probably 11th, 12th century A.D. Um, so this period, something happened. There was a confluence of, of, of cultural influences which caused the emergence of Chola bronzes.
2: One of the reasons all the calcolithic workshops, metal workshops, are found in the Beersheva Valley is because the Beersheva Valley has wonderful clays along the banks of the wadi of the dry drainage very much like the clays found uh, in the area of Swamimalai in Tamil Nadu.
1: Seventeen families of hereditary bronze casters trace their roots in Swamimalai back at least 600 years Tom Levy invited the three brothers who run S. Devasnapati Stapati Sons to co-author a research paper on the ethno-archaeology of South Indian bronze icon production and the lost wax method for metal casting in action.
2: We asked the Stapatis if they would be able to do an experiment and replicate one of the most complex uh, metal works from the Copper Age, from the Chalcolithic period. Showing them just a
1: photocopy of one of the most important six-thousand-year-old artifacts from the cave of the treasure, a twin-headed Ibex macehead, Levy challenged them to produce a replica using the lost wax technique. Radhakrishna Stapati used the photocopy to first create a two-dimensional figure.
2: He's, he's carving this out of hard wax in the same way that he would carve a hard wax model for a Hindu god. So they're using exactly the same system of production um, to recreate the kind of uh, calcolithic technology that we were after. (laughs) The key to really making a successful wax model and having the final metal image uh, produced in in a very accurate and beautiful manner is to Be sure that you have wax rods or runnels connecting all the different elements of a complex uh, wax model. Now we have the two elements. We're joining them together. The twin-headed ibex on top of the mace head with the two blades, two beautiful blades uh, that we see here.
1: The Stapati uses a light coating of soft beeswax over the hard wax before adding intricate details to the wax model. Once that model is complete, the craftsman grasps two tubes onto it, one that will be used for the influx of hot metal, the other a smaller gate to allow g- hot gases to exit.
2: After our wax model is created, it is laid on top of a bed of soft sand, a Linen, a piece of linen is laid over that bed and then the wax model is gently laid on top of it. And then the very fine clay from the Kavari Delta is applied to the model very carefully because this is the clay that is going to retain all the intricate details of the wax model.
1: A second layer of coarse patty clay is added on both sides of the clay model and reinforced with baling wire to strengthen the mold which is then left overnight to dry.
2: After the mold is dry uh, the next step is to remove the wax hence we call it the lost wax method. The mold is heated on the edge of a large pit. Uh, That's what we see here. It's covered with dry cow patties to uh, serve as fuel, and a spout made of copper is placed underneath the mold to collect the, the wax as it melts out of this mold.
1: While most workshops in Swami Malai use electric bellows to force air into the furnace chamber, In some parts of India, hand-operated bellows are still used. They went out of use in Swami Malai in the late 1950s. In these photographs taken in Goa in 2005, an itinerant blacksmith from Madhya Pradesh and his son use a large hand-operated bellows made of wood and hide. As the wax begins to flow, it is collected in a metal bowl filled with water and then weighed to calculate how much metal will be needed to fill the mold, one part wax to nine parts metal. Once the wax is drained, the mold is heated until it is red-hot, otherwise it might crack when the molten metal is poured in. When the mold is hot enough, it's buried in a shallow hole dug in the casting floor with the runnels pointed straight up.
2: So it's, it's both insulated and it's able to receive a, a very clean pour. And these furnaces are built probably the same way that they've been built for over a thousand years it's a small square structure and uh, it's approximately 40 centimeters deep Uh, it's filled with burning hot coal that's the main uh, fuel that is used in this process and um, a crucible is placed inside the center of the furnace and it takes about uh, a half hour or an hour to melt all the alloy
1: the red-hot crucible is carried to the mold and the molten copper alloy is poured into the runnels master craftsman Swami Stapati guides the metal with a so-called kuchi stick wrapped with burlap to ensure that no impurities flow into the mold left for a few hours to cool the mold is then ready to be broken open And here's where we find out why so little evidence of the lost wax method survives in the Levant.
2: This is an amazing thing to see because it is destroyed. All evidence of all the effort that went into creating the mold vanishes because they take a hammer, it could be a hammer stone or a metal hammer like they use today, and they break the mold into small pieces and every piece of the mold is simply collected as debris and thrown away. And so this is one of the reasons it's so difficult for us to identify workshops in the archaeological record where the lost wax method actually took place.
1: The mold chips away to reveal the twin-headed Ibex with two blades on a mace head. All evidence of the casting mold must be cleaned from the surface and the metal bars for the runnels must be severed from the mace head.
2: We're finally nearing the end of the process. We're about eight hours into the actual finishing uh, and burnishing of the object. And here, um, one of the workers is using a small file to cut the delicate indications of the um, horns.
1: The bronze casters of Swami Malai live their lives according to a series of sacred texts called the Shilpa Sastras. They carry out ritual acts throughout the process, or so-called pujas, including offerings to cows occupying a barn integrated into the workshop premises.
2: Looking at the relationship between the sacred and the profane, the daily life of production and all the ritual aspects that surround this traditional industry and these create important I would say powerful models for us to model uh, what happened in antiquity whether it was 500 years ago or 6,000 years ago mid-Chola was the,
3: the, the, the most magnificent period
1: you see San Diego neuroscientist V.S. Ramachandran is an admirer of Chola bronzes and looks to the wiring of the brain to explain the appeal of the Hindu art coming out of Swami Malai.
3: What's happening is certain features of objects, when you exaggerate them, the brain gets a big jolt from this exaggeration. Sometimes the exaggeration is not obvious. For example, if you take a rat and show it a square, and then you teach it that a rectangle is food, a square is no food. Now the amazing thing is it learns this, this is classical Skinnerian conditioning, but then you show it to a long skinny rectangle which is never seen before, it prefers that to the original rectangle. Well you say that's kind of stupid, why does it prefer that? The answer is it's learned to rule rectangularity, so the more rectangular, wow, the more sexy it is, okay? Now what the Chola bronze artist is doing is asking what is the essential aspect of feminine grace and poise and beauty? Just as what is the essential aspect of being rectangular, in that case it's very obvious, but with poise and dignity, sensuality and sexuality, all of these things are not obvious, but the Chola bronze artist has somehow divined them, have, uh, has extracted them and amplified them. And in doing this, he powerfully gives you a powerful jolt, aesthetic jolt of the kind you can never see with a real woman or with a playboy pinup, for example. Uh, that's the key to, to Chola art. Indeed, it's a key to all great art, but I think it's not merely that. It also has what I call this transcendental aspect to it. The chap who invented the Nataraja icon, who even conceived of it, was a genius, uh, equal in caliber to Leonardo da Vinci or Einstein or any of these people for having conceived of this, this, this exquisite iconography.
1: One parallel between ancient metal production found in Jordan at the biblical copper factory of Hirbat and Nahas dating to around 3,000 years ago and the traditional bronze industry of Swami Malai took UCSD archaeologist Tom Levy by surprise.
2: One of the most exciting discoveries that we made in our ethno-archaeological research was um, the notion of the importance of recycling in traditional metalworking.
1: Tom and Alina's visit to the workshop coincided with the arrival of a mud washer. Someone who goes from workshop to workshop throughout the year, digging up the metal casting floor down to three feet to literally wash the dirt. He digs a pit with a shallow basin attached to it lined with bricks.
2: They clean all the sediment from the floor of the workshop. And the goal is to separate out all the small metal bits, the the filings, the droplets of metal and so on, and separate it and clean it so that it can be remelted and used in other objects. And uh, when we were there in 2005, uh, this man actually retrieved over 300 kilos of metal during that two-week period from the different casting areas and through the cleaning of uh, crucibles.
1: According to Levy, this attention to recycling may explain why his team found thousands of tons of black metallurgical slag on the site surface of Kirbat and Nahas today, ancient metallurgical slag more than 3,000 years old. The slag is visible from the site itself and even from satellite views from space using tools such as Google Earth. In order to extract remaining droplets or prills of metal still embedded in the slag after smelting operations, the Iron Age metal workers intensively crushed slag waste using groundstone tools such as mortars, pestles, grinding slabs, and anvils. Hundreds of these tools have been found in the excavations at the site by UC San Diego and Jordan's Department of Antiquities, and many of these slag processing tools were found clustered near slag mounds. In Swami Malai, thousands of years later, the UCSD researchers observed that slag crushing is still an integral part of contemporary bronze casting workshops in South India, like this worker
2: pulverizing slag retrieved from the workshop crucibles. What did it mean? Well, in Swami Malai, in the workshop where we were, the mud washer and some other uh, workers from the workshop, um, they crushed all the slag deposits around the workshop, and specifically to extract all those little metal bits that we call prills, metal prills, so that they could be remelted and cast into new objects.
1: On the other end of the recycling process, the mud washer casts huge ingots of metal in simple open-air molds dug in the casting floor. The process is also used routinely by workers in the bronze casting workshop to recycle larger quantities of excess metal after the pouring process, creating ingots that can then be used on the next bronze works using simple technology that was available thousands of years ago in the Middle East as well.
2: Those are some of the things that powerful um, explanatory models that we were able to get from our ethno-archaeological research in Swamimalai, and apply them to different periods in the Middle East, what we, what we would call a deep time study of uh, the role of technology on social
3: evolution. The great thing about places like Malay is that tradition has continued for probably 1,500 years. An art historian could give you a more accurate figure, but probably 1,500 years, that tradition of Pallava and Chola bronzes and you go there now you see the same descendants of the same uh, uh and, and shilpis who are making these bronze sculptures exquisite uh, pieces of sculpture because they've learned the art and passed it on generation to generation
1: indeed in 2005 there were 175 registered craftsmen in swami malai only 35% hereditary however unlike many traditional crafts around the world that are in danger of disappearing the Lost Wax method is flourishing in South India.
2: Our research shows that in the early 60s it was in decline but with the growth of the Indian diaspora around the world uh, there's a new demand for these bronze icons for their temples, for their home worship and so on. So the number of, of Stapatis, the hereditary bronze casters practicing their craft, Today is double what it was in the 1960s. This is good news.
1: Unfortunately, says Levy, the same is not true elsewhere and with ancient crafts dying out worldwide, he is working with the California Institute for Telecommunications and Information Technology, calit 2 at UC San Diego on a plan to document, archive and put online information and videos about traditional technologies while they're still around.
0: Every day we lose some element of our cultural heritage, uh, sometimes because of natural forces and sometimes because of malicious man-made damage. Uh, here in Cal-IT2 we have significant investments and in capabilities in storage, uh, in processing and in visualization. All of these technologies can be put together to preserve these works of art for posterity.
1: Archaeologist Phil Debarros couldn't agree more. He is documenting ironworking techniques in West Africa.
0: This can give you insights how to better interpret the archaeological record. That's the real value of, eth- of archaeological studies. But of course, you can't do them if the people are no longer practicing those techniques. So it's not a permanent source of information that's going to be around in fifty years. Every year it is a ticking clock
2: where the information is disappears. The bronze casters of Swami Malai, they have their roots in the Chola Empire and maybe even earlier. So we're comparing Uh, an historic empire level society to a chiefdom level society. But the technologies of traditional bronze casting certainly developed much earlier in India and so the roots of that process, the lost wax process, certainly go back much earlier than uh, its constellation that we're able to see today. So, it does provide, from a technological point of view, a very important um, analogy or model for looking at the archeological record.
1: Ultimately, says Levy, the bronze casters of Swami Malai and the ancient ruins of the Levant that were deeply connected to metal production have much to tell us about how today's society is being affected by profound technological change. Those parallels are echoed at key points in a new exhibit, Journey to the Copper Age, running from June 2007 to February 2008 at the San Diego Museum of Man. Highlights of the show are the artifacts from excavations in Israel and Jordan by Professor Levy, who curated the exhibition.
2: This exhibit and our academic research in India and the Middle East shows us the powerful role of technological change in shaping societies. And I go back to the comparison with... um, the IT revolution and its impact on us over the last 25 or 30 years. It's that sort of profound reorganization of our society that went on with the metallurgical
3: revolution.